0: Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. So welcome, everyone, to another podcast on Pain Talk. I'm really excited uh, to introduce you to someone with a lived experience of pain, Mrs. Virginia McIntyre. I've listened to a few different sessions that she's given in the past, and I've been so impressed with her pain journey. And I do think that uh, being able to talk to her about this is going to be something helpful for everyone. So welcome, Virginia.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Doctor. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, Virginia, maybe what you could do is take us back... uh, to when pain became persistent for you, and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your pain journey.
1: Well, I developed uh, chronic pain in 2009 after a shoulder surgery from a workplace injury. I had this surgery. So I came out of the surgery, and when you start coming off your meds, I was left with this sharp, sharp pain in my back. Uh, so you can imagine how I felt. Here I'm not able to get back to work after being off work for about eight months already and not able to get back to work, and I have more pain than what I started with. This, for me, became the start of a, a, what I call is my health shuffle. I started going from health care provider to health care provider. When someone's treatments didn't work, I was then referred to another health care provider. And with them all giving me the same broken promises that they could help and they'd be able to get the pain to go away. Um, I don't look at this as their fault, I just I've learned that many people don't understand pain. The difficult thing going through that is I had to endure um, many uh, off-the-cuff comments and looks of disbelief. I was starting at this point to feel very misunderstood, not mm-hmm. believed. I couldn't understand why I couldn't make the pain go away. The pain just seemed to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, pain was starting to absorb every aspect of my life. Um, there was many losses. I was become very withdrawn. I was losing friends. I hadn't been at work now for quite some time i was like most people with pain felt uh, hopeless guilt uh, loneliness I became very frustrated with the healthcare, healthcare system did you did you, feel, did you feel
0: did you feel believed uh, virginia like when you were struggling with this uh, this intensity of mm-hmm. pain especially when you know healthcare providers are saying to you you know what virginia it's all going to go away it's going to get better you just got to keep pushing a little bit harder did you feel that you were being listened to during that no. time
1: not with primary health care. No, I, I, I didn't. And, you know, every health care provider, you go to whether there's a physio or that they just were doing the same thing. No, not one time did I feel like I was being believed whatsoever.
0: No. What do you think would have been helpful at that time uh, in terms of how how we as healthcare providers, especially patients that are not sort of fitting that mold where we like to see, you know, pain intensity starts to come down and pain seems to get better, what do you think we should be doing early on, and when do you think that intervention needs to be happening during that pain journey?
1: I think immediately okay. when you're in the primary health care. Um, I, I know they say it's after three months. Uh, you do, and maybe at that point, I think you need to sit down and as a health care provider is let the person know you believe them. Exactly. Sit down, yeah. look at them, look away from the computer. Um, when you're not looking at them, words hurt. And yeah. the off-the-cuff comments or telling someone it's all in your head or try harder, this hurts. I, I think if a health care provider to say, I'm not sure what to do. Yeah, it would have been a lot easier for me because all what happened is I just built walls around me. I started to really not trust.
0: Yeah. You know, when you actually start looking into some of the literature now, because this is such an important time in terms of that transition when pain is not going away. Uh, and how we as healthcare providers can actually contribute to the suffering as well as to the amplification of pain that patients are actually feeling. One of the one of the the papers that I looked at talked about the fact that if the patient is not showing that that and I'm just curious about your feeling about this, but if they're not kind of making that transition, recognizing that there's another mechanism at play here, it doesn't have to be a tissue-based play, but that usually we have to start changing our approach around two weeks. Um, but it is important that we're telling patients that this is real, this is real what you're feeling, but the mechanism for what's happening here may be a little bit different than what we thought originally.
1: Well, it was different for me. Um, nobody really believed me because I don't think anybody knew what was happening. I don't think we were even thinking I had chronic pain at the time.
0: Right. Or even, I, I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm thinking about is, is that transition piece because we know that um, there can be lots of triggers uh, for persistent pain and, and the severity of pain that you were experiencing and the fact that the system was not really, and the healthcare providers were not really recognizing that severity and acknowledging that this was something that you were experiencing um, required us to step back. It, didn't, it wasn't all just about the healing piece, it was really about what was happening within that pain system that we yep. needed to kind of start looking at a little bit differently. I, I, I'm just curious about what you're... I'm not putting, putting you on the spot, but I, I think uh-huh. it's so important how we get healthcare providers, what you're telling us is so important because we need to recognize how we contribute to the suffering of patients who went through what you went through. And I, I think it was it was so unnecessary. I'm not sure oh. what you think, but... yeah.
1: Well, when I got into... I mean, about two years into my journey, I got a referral to the uh, QE2, and that was the difference because now a physician sat in front of me yeah. and, uh, and, and validated, yes, your pain is real. Yeah. There is three things we're going to have to look at for your pain that's going to help, you know, the three P's of pain. Uh, and was honest with me and said, your pain's not going to go away.
0: Yeah. And I think yeah. that's
1: a big thing. And the self-management classes. So he, you know, told me, under that, but at this time, you're so girded. Yeah. You don't want to trust, and you're only hearing half of it at two. So yeah. I think you're right that it needs to go back from long before that. But yeah. their approach was so much different. It was sat in a chair and looked, and when I didn't know what to answer, he just sat there and waited. It wasn't feeling like I was rushed.
0: Yeah, you know, and it it highlights the importance of these acute care, acute pain services to recognize when I think about some of the surgical services, because you had some surgery, is Mm -hmm. the importance of recognizing... What increases the risk of a patient developing persistent pain and uh, our ability to kind of cue into that so that we can help to minimize, you know, the progression of that. So two years to me seems like a crazy amount of time to have to wait uh, to actually get to somebody that can legitimize and acknowledge that this suffering is real and that this pain experience is very real. Despite what they're thinking is happening in the tissue, what you're having, what you have going on there is very, very real.
1: And in that two years, remember, you're out of work, The yeah. workplace is definitely not happy with you. You're feeling guilty about your family. So the psychological, everything else is really impacting. And you don't have a clue what's happening to you.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I know that uh, working in the emergency room, I often see patients who are in crisis. Uh, and often that what what's happening is they're getting these frequent flare-ups, but they're not really sure why they're happening. They know that they're real. Uh, they feel that other people are not believing them that they're real. Um, But I I always try and sit down with those people. And you don't need a ton of time, but you need to give that person 100% of that time, that you're sitting there, that you're listening, um, and that you're helping them understand that this is probably a, a process that is happening within the tissue that is very real. So, you know, we just, we still have, I think early on what's important is we have to make sure that there's nothing else going on in the tissue, like anything dangerous or bad or any complication that might be happening from the surgery. But we also have to acknowledge that this other process can be going on as well and uh, to, to legitimize that for the patient. Would you, would you, so go after going through all of that, Virginia, and I know it's sort of looking back, it's a little bit easier, but what do you think patients can do to advocate for themselves a little bit better, or do you feel that the system should be more, doing more advocating for them?
1: I I think there's two things. I, I think you I think the system needs to be doing more advocating. You shouldn't have to wait to get to a pain specialist. Um, when I went to the pain specialist, I didn't believe I had chronic pain.
0: Mm.
1: that those words hadn't even have never come up. You know, I was fortunate I was a doctor. But I I think, I think it becomes to both. I think it is the system and it is the patient. But when a patient is totally looking for answers, and we're looking for physical answers, we're not, our mind isn't there in the chronic pain thing, uh, because we don't understand it.
0: Yeah. So what did chronic pain mean to you when when they said you had chronic pain? How did you interpret that?
1: You know when I wasn't quite sure. But what my physician, when I went to the pain clinic, and I said, this is two years into the journey now, he looked at me and said, you have pain, you have chronic pain, it will not go away. Yeah. So he Right up front and honest and kind, right, right from the beginning. We're going to have to know. We've got some things we can do. With, uh, I go for trigger point injections and stuff that will decrease your pain, but it's not going to take it away. We need to learn.
0: When, when uh, I have that conversation sometimes with patients, and I'm not sure if this was your experience, but I think it, it is important to highlight this uh, when I have said to patients, um, that, you know, you have this problem, which is called persistent pain right now, and that pain mm-hmm. is not going to go away. And for some patients, it's almost like telling them that something has died, that they they almost go through a mourning or a significant loss in their life, and they almost have to process that as a loss. I'm not sure if that was your experience, but I'm curious about what you think of that.
1: Absolutely. First, I thought it was a failure, why I, I couldn't make it go away. Yeah. I'm a smart woman. I work I'm a career I, I, I looked at it as a failure um, and also yeah there's many losses because all your whole life your back life is lost Yeah. so you have to absorb that and you don't know what the new life is going to look like and that's baby steps that doesn't happen overnight that takes months years for some people to, to get there yeah. so there, there's many losses because you could lose your career I didn't lose my career but I'm in an accommodated position so I'm not doing where I was headed with my career yeah um you lose friends. Yeah. I can't play the sports I played. So, so there are many losses, and mm-hmm. it's it's that feeling isolated and alone. Yeah, that. So you, you It is. Yeah. It is a lot of long. Yeah.
0: So the other, the other thing I sometimes will say to patients is that, and I'm just sort of throwing these things out because I'm hoping that I'm using the right talking points for patients as well. So, I mean, you can tell me if I'm not because I need to know, just like my the other listeners are going to need to know this as well. But um, sometimes I'll tell patients is that when you get a diagnosis of chronic pain, well, your life changes at that moment, even though the process has been going on for a long time. It's like getting a diagnosis of insulin-dependent diabetes. All of a sudden, I have to manage. Manage my life differently I have to do things differently I have to uh, make sure that I'm eating well and that I'm getting exercise that I'm doing it in a right way that I'm not causing significant flare-ups it doesn't mean that I can't have a quality of life but I can't have the life that I had previous to when I developed chronic pain I'm just curious about your thoughts about that
1: I think that's a good way to go Um, I think by also letting them know we can help you find that life and as your life, even though your life changes, it doesn't mean you change as a person.
0: Exactly. You're still there. You're still You're there. You're still a yeah.
1: person. And there's other people out there who are going through the same thing. Yeah. that fine. can be through. But it is, it's, it's doable. And, and it's slow. And if it, if it means that you take one step more today than you did yesterday. Yeah. That's
0: okay. Exactly. You need, the brain needs to know that you're moving forward. And I think what happens is that patients can get very much stuck. And I'm curious about your thoughts of this as well. There, I call it the acute pain treadmill, where you get sent to physician, specialist after specialist. We were, you were talking about this a little bit earlier. And that you keep getting stuck because you're hoping that the next person is going to have the answer, is going to have the treatment to make this all mm-hmm. go away. And, and it kind of keeps you in this mindset that it's all going to get better. And it kind of delays that oh. shift that sometimes you need. Need, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. You're, you're, you're in the shuffle. I call it my shuffle. But everybody yes. kept telling me they can make it go away.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: You are, you're desperate, you're, you're hope because you're going from the couch to do something, do something. And I was a little different than other people because I'm a runner. Yeah. So I would go from the couch, to go for a run. then I'd come back and people look at me, well, you can run. And I'm like, well, how can I not run? Because if I don't stop moving, yeah. it's going to get worse and worse. But yeah. you, you're were you searching. You're searching for every door you walk in that they're going to. But it needs that person to say, This is what you have. But you need that multidisciplinary team too.
0: Yes, yeah. Can I just, uh, I'm curious about, uh, we talk about the chronic pain spiral. I'm not sure. Did you experience that, uh, Virginia? This is where, um, and we see this a a fair bit uh, in the... uh, Uh, in the emergency room, oftentimes patients are coming in, they're in this chronic pain spiral Mm -hmm. where they're getting frequent flare-ups. And no matter what they do, even simple maneuvers can give them significant pain to the point where they're actually not going out, not visiting people, not eating. Pain is deciding everything. And they're in this hopeless, helpless sort of mindset. And I think you were talking about that earlier um, and then helping them make that shift over to that functional part of their life. So they're in a pain focus. Pain focused life and, and trying to get over to that function focused requires that transition. Did did you experience that as well?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It kept worse and worse and worse. And it was to the point when I'd go for a run, pain instead of just being my upper back, my leg was dropping. Yeah. Everything was dropping. Everything, the pain was just spreading. And then I it was everything. And then you got ice on you, and you're literally burning parts of your body with ice. Yeah. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And it, yeah, yeah, I, I was. It was horrible. It was horrible. My, uh, right. I was just di- yeah. di- di- distant from my family, from everybody. Yeah. But the thing that happened when I went to the QE2, because my trigger point injections end up being so frequently, and then I had to have another shoulder surgery, and then these trigger points started to but we were doing them every three to four weeks. So every three to four weeks, I'm sitting in front of this pain specialist for a half hour, right. and he's looking at me, okay, so, you know, what's your next step? And just letting me talk and all the. So these things take time but it's having someone in your corner constantly.
0: Yeah. And I, th- and I think this is a, what's really important about what you're saying, and I don't think that healthcare providers realize this, is that patients who are living with persistent pain don't want to feel this way, and they will do everything they can not to. So they will get out there and run. They'll get out there and walk, but they're not understanding the mechanisms around the flare-ups. The flare-ups are actually what are keeping them stuck. But a lot of healthcare providers don't think that patients are trying enough. And I keep saying they are trying really hard, but it's... it's it's because we're not really understanding how the the you know the amplification that's happening in that pain system is contributing to these significant flare-ups. So I think you know I think it's important. I think what you're saying is how hard you were working to get back to a functional quality of life. Uh, but all of those all of those uh, acute pain measures that we think about, yeah, just keep pushing. You know, you'll be fine. All of those things were actually contributing to keeping you stuck as well.
1: Oh, absolutely, and uh, I think it's because our health care providers don't know. I think the first physio, when I, again, when I went to PUE2, the pain specialist, was, I want you to go to the physio over to rehab here in Halifax. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You want me to drive an hour and 20 minutes to a physiotherapist? Yeah. I sat there at the rehab, and by this time, and I was I was, a, I was a horrible person, and this physiotherapist looked at me, and I looked at her, and I said, okay, you're number five. What in the world can you do that nobody else can? Yeah, exactly. And she did something for me. Mm-hmm. she taught me about pain she told me she said runners do stupid things you need to slow it back you're flaring yourself up over and over
0: yeah yeah
1: need to, it was the first one so i think we need a list of which physio and which occupational therapist and which psychologists are trained in pain it's, yeah. it's complex you have to be especially trained to to be able to get the person to understand and to know and keep them from not going spin like a hamster
0: on that wheel. Yeah. Well, you know, I think I think the, the 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 knowledge though, the 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 amount of information that we need is actually not super complicated. Like most pain is actually provided by non-pain specialists, you know, primary care. We are so far behind. I mean, when you think about a condition like chronic pain and we've got what 250,000 Nova Scotians who are living with chronic pain, you think that we would have that kind of education in there. I mean, when we look at the education we have around, you know, stroke and heart disease, and the amount of infrastructure we have to respond to those things, it just blows my mind that we don't have that kind of infrastructure uh, within our healthcare systems around pain. And pain is one of the most common uh, conditions that we see. Persistent pain is a huge problem in our province. Um, so we, to me, if, this is one of the reasons I love to do this podcast, is to try to get some information that this is a real process, that as healthcare providers, when we're seeing patients with persistent pain, that we need to shift our focus from... Uh, just focusing on kind of pushing them, getting them through stuff and understanding, helping them understand, first of all, that this is, we got to listen to them, but we also have to acknowledge that what they're feeling is real, but then also help them work with the condition so that they're not getting these significant flare-ups. So two of the big things that I found in the pain self-management program for patients is when they could make that shift from acute pain to chronic pain so they understood that this was a real condition that required a very, very unique uh, approach uh, and that they started doing something called pacing. Was that the same thing with you when you started understanding pacing?
1: Yes, I, I would have to, and I still do it. I'll set a timer down. Pacing is my biggest challenge, and that's when I, one of the biggest things I got about my self-management thing was pacing. Know where that line is, and you're going to have that flare up and, and make that shift. But that's where these pain self-management classes come in. Our health care providers don't have time. Our primary health care physicians don't have time or don't, can't in 10 minutes do help you make that shift.
0: Right, exactly. Pain self-management is a pretty amazing. I, I think of it as the uh, diabetic clinics, you know, where people learn to live with their insulin-dependent diabetes. It's, it's more education-based. Now, the other piece of that is that people have to be ready for that shift, right? So some yeah. patients just are not ready to make the shift from acute pain or somebody cure me or fix me to that chronic pain mindset. Do you have any suggestions to help patients make those transitions?
1: That's a hard one. I, I think for them to know that when they make the transition, life will be better. Mm. Uh, I think if we label pain as an illness instead of just chronic pain, that we think it's going to go away. uh, I think they need to get that in their head. It's not going away. Um, I think just for them to know life will get better and it's okay if life isn't the same. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes even sitting in that classroom around other people who are living with pain helps you make that shift, even if even those who weren't ready initially
0: Mm, yeah exactly yeah it's um for me it's it's one of the the most satisfying things when i'm sitting in the so we do some teaching around the pain self-management when patients start to you can see these light bulbs coming on and and you're like wow they're starting to really kind of understand that first of all it legitimizes what they're experiencing and if if anything I always find it hard that, uh, that we don't recognize that this is a real condition. It's a very unique condition. Uh, it's not something you're going to measure in a blood test. It's not something you're going to see in a CT scan. Sometimes we get patients focusing on the wrong things like degenerative disease or degenerative arthritis when those are things that are going to happen to all of us. It's really about what's happening within that pain system that is really where we need to be able to focus to help patients start to get more mobile. So did you have any, any suggestions around flare-ups? What kinds of things that would help to minimize those flare-ups for you?
1: Flare-ups can be tricky. Um, I, I'm lucky I don't have as many flare-ups, and it depends on the severity. If I have like a, just a moderate flare-up or the ones I usually have, I kind of think back to the, sa- the things that the, my physician had said on me. You talk about the pharmacological ones, which you know, I've got my creams I use, and then the physical and the psychological. So in the physical aspect, I, I am um, a true believer of exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, so during, a, during a, a flare-up, I will go lie down for a while, and I kind of pull myself out of things for a while, and I just kind—I ice and I, I listen to the music. So there's a the psychological aspect. I just listen to music and do mindfulness. After you know, 15-20 minutes, I can kind of get myself up, moving again. And again, the movement might just be slow, or might be going for a little run or a little walk. But that's kind of how I deal with my flare-ups is just pulling out for a while and then slowly moving myself back in Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. severe flare-ups are a little more challenging for me I do almost the same thing but I end up having to pull myself out of thing for a few hours and Mm -hmm. just kind of go in and do mindfulness and listen to my music and get the ice on and then I will get myself going and I don't beat myself up that I have to cancel something or I've had to pull out of everything for two to three hours or a day it's it's okay the next I'm going to get back on it and I know in my mind now because I know what's happening, I'm going to be okay later on today or I'm going to be okay tomorrow.
0: So that's really important that self-talk piece. One of our uh, physiotherapists often what she'll how she'll frame it is that, you know, if you have a flare up, whatever you do, don't freak out because it's going to be okay. It's gonna come back down again. I think what happens sometimes is that, because the intensity, I, I always say to my colleagues that we have to understand that patients who are living with persistent pain are never pain free. So their daily intensity can vary considerably, but for most, their zero may be five. So when they have these flare-ups, they're going way off the scale. So it feels like life and death. I mean, our brain is supposed to pay attention to that. And sometimes there's a perception that there is something really dangerous and bad that's happening. And so we, what I always say to, to patients is that you can have severe pain without anything dangerous or bad, but it's my job when I see you to make sure there isn't anything dangerous or bad. So patients that are coming to us with these big flare ups, we need to make sure that we're examining them, that we're laying our hands on them, because this is a pain system that can really fool us sometimes and they can have something going on. So I think this is where it's really important for healthcare providers to recognize that these flare ups are really intense. Uh, And it's important that we make sure that there's nothing new that's going on in that tissue. So nothing new or nothing progressing uh, that that patient may have. So I'm just curious about your thoughts about that.
1: Wow. Well, you know how happy I am to hear you say that? Yeah. Uh, When I go in and uh, before I went for my second shoulder surgery, my pain physician said, well, let's go see another surgeon. Why don't you go see another surgeon and get a second um, opinion? I'm like, it can't come from you. I am a woman walking in that door with chronic pain, and they're just going to look at me and say, there is nothing wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's And that's
1: what we go through. So to hear you say that, that you have to examine and not think that this has to do with their pain, is amazing because I don't think everybody gets that.
0: Yeah, I always, I have a, when I teach uh, students, uh, medical students, um, I have an approach to chronic pain that I try and stress to them. And the first three steps are, the first step is to listen to their pain story. The second step is to acknowledge suffering. And then the third step is to examine them carefully for any new pathology or progression of a pre-existing disease. So those are the first three steps in the approach uh, because it's really, really important uh, that we make sure that there's nothing new. It doesn't mean that I order a ton of tests because patients have been through all kinds of tests. Um, But if I have any concern at all, then I'm gonna order the tests that I need to order. But a lot of times it's just really examining them, making sure and then be able to provide that information that look, I know that this pain is really intense today, but I don't see anything new. Um, so let's just figure out how we need to kind of move forward from this. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's so important, Virginia, that healthcare providers recognize that the intensity of pain that you can experience with a flare up is right off the scale. It's not oh. your normal kind of pain.
1: <laughs> and to hear you just say that you take the time to examine, I mean, we get bounced around so much and get so much disbelief just for someone to take the time to examine and listen. It just makes us at ease to know, okay, somebody really cares what's going on with me.
0: Yeah. Well, you do, because... In fact, it, I would. I would argue that patients who are living with chronic pain often will get mi- misdiagnosis sometimes because people are not examining them. Um, but most times, I mean, I try. I can only practice the way I practice, but I can also encourage my colleagues to do this as well. But uh, um, I think it. I think you being on this podcast, you know, expressing that, hopefully, other healthcare providers are listening to what you're saying and how important it is to examine you know, a patient who's living with persistent pain that comes in with intense flare-ups.
1: Absolutely, and I I think the more we speak up, the better. Um, I think because of the stigma, people with pain don't share.
0: Exactly. And they're very isolated. It's a very isolating and shaming disease, right? It's um, um, because...
1: Shaming, I like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is. People feel really bad that they're living with... It's not their fault that they have persistent pain. Uh, They didn't say pick me kind of thing. I mean, there obviously are some risk factors that we bring to the table for every kind of condition. If I look at risk factors for heart disease, look at risk factors for stroke, can look at risk factors for chronic pain. We know that there are certain factors and the research now now is just I'm just so excited about what we're seeing in our understanding around these mechanisms, so that we can get very targeted treatment. And women tend to be, you know, we're, we we tend to be stigmatized even further because we're seen as sort of high. You know, it's, a, it's in the old days it used to be called hysteria, you know. And and I'm like, well, no. We know that there are differences around the endocrine system in women, as there are in men, because there are certain types of pain, um, chronic pain syndromes that are very specific to to men, and there are some that are. Very very specific to women, but we're really starting to understand that area of medicine now, and so there's a lot of hope, I believe, um, for all of us—that uh, both well, for us that help to uh, help patients manage this very complex illness, but also for patients to feel hopeful that there is something that's happening around this area.
1: Oh, I think so, and I think the uh, Canadian Pain Task Force is bringing light to it because they're bringing light to everything that we're always saying.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: There there is, yeah, there is hope.
0: so listen if if um if uh, Premier McNeil, who's the Premier of Nova Scotia, said, Virginia, I want to put you in control of a pain program here in Nova Scotia. We have a small province, we should be able to do it. Uh, we'll give you uh, say we'll give you three million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where Where do you think? Watch me go. Yeah, watch you go. Yeah, you know what they need, and and you will be. At, I think you're at our table anyway for for the chronic p- provincial uh, program anyway. But that, and I think that's really important is that we need to bring patients who are, have a lived experience with pain because they know where the 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 services need to go. Where would you Where would you put Where would where you would put I that know? money first?
1: <laughs> I look at now what I'm doing here in the valley with no money with the peer support group. Oh yes, well, talk talk about the
0: to... peer support group. Actually, oh, I'm God. sorry if we forgot about that one.
1: <laughs> all right oh i'll you well, the whole thing well we'll go to your wish what i would do is i put a multidisciplinary approach yeah it, it really has to go back to pain clinics uh pain specialists you have to have self-management classes multidisciplinary approach we need to know that the people and with not just the physiotherapist, but the ot and the psychologists and not just the classes we need funding into you can get single time with them. Yeah. And that we need our doctors, um, a better fee structure for our doctors so Ooh. that Ooh-hoo. they have more time <laughs> with the chronic pain patient. When you're newly diagnosed with chronic pain, you need to have so many appointments, of half-hour appointments, with the correct free fee structure so the doctor has time to see you because they're going to guide you through this whole maze yeah. that you have to go through.
0: Yes. And
1: yeah. I think if you need that, I need more education, for our physicians. Mm-hmm. And then we need, like I said, the multidisciplinary approach for your, your patients and the pain clinics, your classes. And I think we need more support groups in the province and we need assistance with them.
0: Exactly. I think there needs to be some funding around that because that's really important. After you go through pain self-management, there almost is a sense of abandonment for patients because they're like, OK, is that it? I still want to be part of this group uh, that really yeah. understands my needs. And, uh, yeah, the education piece, it's not just physicians, too. I, You know, it's really interesting when I uh, send her after working with physiotherapists and occupational therapist and a psychologist who understand chronic pain. It's it's really frustrating when I send a patient to someone who doesn't like a physiotherapist who doesn't understand chronic pain and continues to push 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 not understanding uh, how flare ups can be uh, a, a huge problem. We, we'll see this a lot in our workman's compensation uh, population where they have these work hardening programs and they. Oh, just, that was my world. Yes, I can't. I, it is. It is a. It makes many of these many patients. They just feel beaten down and they feel hopeless, and they they're trying and it's and they're told that they're not trying and I'm like, well, they need to understand how they they, they could get these patients in a better position if they understood the the uh, amplification of that pain system and also the significance of these flare ups, even if they're not causing damage, pushing through it doesn't matter it, they have to, you have to work within those flare ups. We want people moving, but we have to do it within the our understanding of what's happening within that pain system. So, yeah, that was your world, was it?
1: It was. Yeah. It was. I mean, and then the WCB, these insurance companies, they're, they're, they're not good systems for that sort of stuff. Their idea is get you back to, back to work. Yes. So these things, I don't think that they're working well with it, and hopefully they will.
0: Yeah. So tell us a bit about uh, the peer support that you're doing, the huge amount of work out there. I'm trying oh, to recruit you to our area, but this is a good oh, start.
1: So, like I said, I developed chronic pain in 2009. It wasn't until 2017 that I actually started sharing that I live with pain. Okay. I, Because of the stigma, I, I didn't say it. I went to, um, Canadian Pain Society was here and I went to a workshop they had on sharing stories and it was after that that I kind of mustered the courage to actually come out of the shadows and share my personal experience. I then became to recognize that I am very fortunate to be able to go out and back to work and have the life that I have. So I started up peer-led pain self-management group here in the valley uh, with help of a few key people who were complete strangers and came on to help me and a couple of them are people who live with pain so we set up this group and it's you know our mission is just to provide hope and education and improve lives people live with pain we provide a balance of education and support and the group members it's you know it's that lived experience you come together and you share we have Probably about 50 people already as members, and about 15 come every, it's once a month, comes to our meetings. But they choose what speakers we want in. They choose the topics. We sit there together, and we'll have presenters in, and we keep the attitude positive. The really cool thing we just did last week, and we've done it a couple of times, is we pulled out of the support group, and we went and met for coffee. Oh, nice. A, <laughs> it all at a local restaurant. And we sat around the table for about two and a half hours having coffee and breakfast. And there was no pain talk. Nice. It was just people laughing. Who, mind you, most of these people are all strangers.
0: Wow. Yeah, yeah
1: come out of their house, some with their walkers, some with their canes, and <laughs> sat there in a restaurant and just laughed for a couple hours. And
0: it's mm-hmm. it's cool. Yeah, and best, best therapy, better perfect. than any kind of medication you can take or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah all yeah. those endorphins going. Yeah. No, yeah. it's you know humans are designed for connection and chronic pain is a very disconnecting illness. People become more isolated and disconnected. They become less functional less mobile especially as they're trying to find their way forward and so those kinds of activities that bring people together the connection they're all they're having to move to get there which is really important um just makes people feel uh feel so much more that they have some control over this uh, very complex uh, illness yeah. all right well listen is there anything else that you want to add uh to the discussion uh, your two points
1: <laughs> my my two points okay i'll have a couple of points um my, I think my biggest point is people know that pain is real. Mm. And another thing is, and you know, I had someone talk to me a couple of years ago, and they were doing a little newsletter, and they asked me one of my biggest points is to believe. Yes. I just think yeah. everybody needs to believe that it is real. Um, you know, we see the looks of disbelief and the comments that are made to us, they hurt. These comments and how we're treated, it stays with you forever. Yes. It takes a long time to get back on. So just be mindful of your words and and believe. I think that's the biggest thing.
0: I think that's a great, those are two really, really important points is that we need to recognize that what that patient is experiencing is very real. um, And that we need to acknowledge that that suffering uh, is, is impactful to their life. Thank you so much, Virginia, for doing this with me today. Um, It was a pleasure. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get you back at some other point. And uh, so we're hoping to bring in other other experts in this field, but I really felt that uh, you needed to be our first expert in this area. So, listen, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, take care. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.